Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Church, for that welcome. It's, it was great being down at the town centre. Lovely to see some kind of old and familiar faces, but really, really lovely uh, being back up here with you um, today. This is, as Francis said, this is the last in our series on sustainable power. And you know, the Holy Spirit is incredibly kind. He's incredibly kind. If you were here last Sunday evening at the encounter evening, you'll have heard uh, three people giving stories of how they've received healing in the last few weeks when they've been prayed for, they've been healed. It's wonderful. So Hedy told us that the pain in the top of her left leg went when she was prayed for. Alice told us how the pain in the back of her knee was healed through prayer. And Gozi told us about his little daughter, Avia, whose ear was healed. This is the power of God at work amongst real people in our church. And we want to see more, don't we? Good, good. I, we certainly want to see more, not just that we'd see more healings, but actually that we'd, we'd get to know God better, that we'd experience more of his power, and that we'd have more of the Holy Spirit's power working through us as we, as we, as we go out into our day-to-day lives. Um, Paul writes to the churches in Corinth that he didn't come to them with eloquence or wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that is how we're going to see lives changed in our town, not just through the gospel being preached, it needs to be preached, but also through a demonstration of the power of God. So this series has been all about looking at those rocks that are in us as individuals that prevent the Holy Spirit from working through us. And I don't know about you, but as we've gone through this series, looked at things like self-reliance and control and disappointment and unforgiveness, I've kind of felt I've got all of those. <laughs> and to some degree, I've got, I've got all of those things. And I'd, I would love for God just to come and destroy those rocks completely, just to take a sledgehammer to those rocks, that I would be completely free of them. But actually, my experience is that the Holy Spirit seems to chip away at some of these things. Some of these things that have been rocks in me for years and years, the Holy Spirit seems to chip away at them and as he reveals more of the character of God and more of who he says we are. So we're going to end this series today by looking at what it might look like if these rocks in us were removed. We're going to look at two passages where Jesus gives a bit of a clue as to what that might be like, and perhaps it isn't um, exactly what we'd expect. So I'm going to invite Emily to come up and read these passages. Can you make Emily feel really welcomed and encouraged? So Emily's going to read from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, and then Mark 10, 13 to 16. How are you doing, Emily? Good, good. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, reads, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who, then, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then Mark 10, 13 to 16 reads, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of heaven 
like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. That's great. Thank you so much, Emily, for reading those. Why don't we just pray for a moment? Lord, I thank you that you are here. And I thank you that you're good. I thank you for those stories that we heard last Sunday of healing in this church. Lord, the power of God is at work here. And Lord, I ask for more of your power in us. Even as we go through these passages this morning and look at what you want to say to us, Lord, will we have a sense of your presence here, your power here with us? There's, there's things you want to say to us today. Help us to be open to hearing your voice this morning. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so those two stories that Emily read out from Matthew and Mark's Gospels are very similar. Both involved the disciples getting something wrong, as they tended to do, and both involved Jesus using the opportunity to correct them or teach them in some way. And there was this key statement in both passages, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's worth saying, first of all, there is a difference between being childlike and childish. Because kids do some pretty annoying and pretty stupid things. When I was a young child, I remember I swallowed a little metal ball. And I remember doing it. And I, I, I don't know why I did it, but I, just, I think I just kind of thought, I wonder what this tastes like. And I put it in my mouth, and I swallowed, and it was gone. And you just, the kids do that sort of thing without really thinking through the consequences. Our kids love to put their fingers in other people's food. And they love, to, they love to draw on things that they're not meant to draw on and jump on things that they're not meant to jump on. It's just what they're like. It's just the sort of thing they do. And they make up these jokes and songs based on body parts and toilet humor. This is, this is, that's what kids do. This is childishness. We're not to go after childishness. We're to go after childlikeness. So we're going to look this morning at three things to do with what it means to be childlike. And one thing kind of leads to the next. And the first thing is this, that we're to have the identity of a child. So in that passage in Matthew's Gospel, the first one that that Emily read, it began with the disciples asking a question. And they asked this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that same story appears in Luke's Gospel. And there Luke explains that this was an argument that had taken place between the disciples about which one of them was the greatest. And, you know, this sort of power struggle seemed to be fairly regular among the disciples. And there's, I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is this, that they were human. They were human beings. They're not made up people. They haven't been sort of photoshopped in some way. They're like you and me with all our insecurities and fears and egos and pride. And this need to somehow prove ourselves to be better than others and to know where we stand in the pecking order. I think we're all like this to some extent. We were designed to have love and community and friendship, and yet because of sin, we experience shame and hurt and struggles for power. It even happens within the church. The author, um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, explains that pride is competitive in its nature. He writes this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. 
See, the disciples have become concerned about who was the greatest. They asked, come on, Jesus, tell us, which one of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, even as they asked that question, I wonder if they wish they hadn't asked. See, Jesus had already said to them some pretty out there things. He said some things that were very radical and very challenging. And here he demonstrates what he wants to say by getting a little child and placing this little child amongst them and saying, actually, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. I want us not to miss how radical this is. Because in our culture, we tend to see little children as being quite cute and quite endearing, quite sweet, or not, depending on your experience. But in this ancient Jewish culture, children weren't seen that way. They had no status. They had no influence. They had nothing at all to offer. What Jesus is saying here is completely revolutionary. And so there's this contrast between these overpowering disciples who've been around with Jesus, who've seen some miraculous things, and who've who've got it into their heads that they're quite important now, and this little child with no status and no power and nothing to offer, completely completely dependent. And Jesus says to them, unless you become like one of these little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to stop trying to be great, He doesn't say, don't go after greatness. It's just that he completely redefines what greatness looks like. See, we can have a tendency to think that greatness is about power and authority and status and influence and position. But in the kingdom of God, it's completely different. The wonderful thing about the gospel is it's the great leveler. You know, you don't need to be intelligent to be a child of God. You don't need to have excelled at school or done your A-levels really well. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. There's no gender pay gap in the kingdom. You don't need to be successful, whatever that means. You don't need to be good-looking by the world's terms. The the gospel is a great leveler. You know, we had a prophetic word spoken over our church a few years ago that said this, that as a church, we'd see a convergence of rich and poor that the wealthy in our town and those in poverty would come together as one church, one family. The reason that can happen is because the gospel is the great leveler. There's nothing that we can do to earn the love of God like we can earn a promotion. All we can do is come to him like a dependent child and receive it like a gift. You know, there's only one who's lived a life that was pleasing to the Father, that was completely pleasing to the Father, and that's Jesus. A life of complete obedience to him. Always obedient, never once sinning. And on the cross, he took the punishment for everything that we've done wrong. The full wrath of God aimed down at him because of our sin. See, our natural state is to rebel against God. It's only through what Jesus has done that we get to be adopted into his family. We're completely dependent on him. And that's the picture that the Bible paints, this this picture of adoption And some of you will know this if you've been through the process, but adoption is all about the initiative of the parent and not the child. So the Christian writer David Flatt talks about this. He he and his wife Heather adopted a son, Caleb, from an orphanage. And they'd had years of waiting expectantly for their child. They had to go through a whole series of medicals and home studies and fingerprints and examinations. And then when the time finally came, they visited this baby in the orphanage. They held him, they fed him, they sang to him, they laughed with him. And David Platt writes this about that. He says, before Caleb was even born, he had a mum and dad working to adopt him. While Caleb was lying alone at night in an orphanage, he had a mum and dad planning to adopt him. 
And one day when Caleb was placed in the arms of his mum and dad, he had no idea of all that had been done, completely apart from any initiative in him to bring him to that point. This precious 10-month-old baby didn't invite us to come to him to bring him into our family. He didn't even know to ask for such a thing. No, this orphan child became our cherished son because of a love that was entirely beyond his imagination and completely outside his control. He did not pursue us, but he was utterly unable to do so. Instead, we pursued him. That is what God has done for you. What can we do to earn his love? Nothing. It is down to a love that is completely outside of our control. We're utterly dependent on our Father God. We just get to come to him as grateful children of the most devoted and wonderful Father. So if you're finding yourself this morning deep down trying to impress God in some way or earn his love, the good news is that you don't have to do that. You can stop trying. You don't need to prove yourself or posture yourself in some way or perform in some way. We just get to receive the love of God the way a child receives a gift. To be childlike is to have that identity of a child. It's also to have the access of a child. We've got three kids. And one thing that I've learned about little children is this. They've got absolutely no respect for personal space. They just, they just don't seem to understand boundaries at all. And, and they've got no problem with kind of getting right in your face, which is really, really lovely at times. But it does mean that whatever is on them is immediately transferred onto you, whether that's tears or dribble or snot or food or worse. Mums and dads, you, you will know this. It is nothing if not intimate. Um, In the passage we read from Mark's gospel, the disciples were trying to prevent the little children from coming to Jesus. They deny the children access to him, but Jesus says, let them come. Don't hinder them. And he takes these little children in his arms. See, his is a very hands-on kind of compassion. And as a child of God, you have complete access to the Father. We were in our staff uh, prayer meeting last Tuesday, um, and Ron said he felt he had a word from God. He said this, I feel God wants to say to some that you're spending too much time walking around in the outer courts, and I want you to come into the inner courts. And I mention this now because I believe it's not just for us as a staff team. This is relevant for us as a, a wider church too. And, you know, Jesus has won this access to the Father for us. See, before Jesus, access to God wasn't like this. There were, there were strict rules on who could enter his presence and how. So the temple in Jerusalem had different courts. There were the outer courts for the Gentiles, people like you and I. And then there were the inner courts where the Jewish people could go. And further in, there was the holy place reserved for the priest. And then inside that was the holy of holies, where one priest could go on one day of the year in fear and trembling before an awesome, mighty God. But now that's completely changed. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the the veil in the temple was torn in two. Our debt was paid by him, and now there's a way for us to have complete access to God, to have an open door to the Father. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does it mean to have access to God? Well, firstly, it means that we have the possibility of intimacy with God. So you'll know from your own friendships that most relationships never really go beyond surface level. But then there are those few, those special relationships 
where there's closeness on another level, where there's intimacy. And intimacy involves vulnerability and honesty and emotions. And they're not always easy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it involves disappointments and fears and failure and tears and mess. I believe that is the kind of relationship that God is inviting us into. That actually whatever we're facing, we can immediately reach out to God whenever we need him. Without any qualifications, without any special language, just our real unmasked selves. With all the honesty and mess and tears sometimes of an intimate relationship. Just like a little child rubbing his messy face all over his dad's shirt. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? Is it honest like that? Is it authentic authentic like that? Is it intimate like that? If it's not, I want to ask you this morning, what is hindering you from having that intimate relationship with God? God invites you not to hang about in the outer courts, but to come in close to him. It's the kind of relationship you see in the book of Psalms where the writers are just completely honest about how they're feeling. It's not all good stuff in there. Sometimes it's anger and disappointment and fears. But they they take it all to God. See, access to God means that we can have intimacy with him. It also means that we have privileges. These rights and resources that are available to us. Let me explain what I mean by that. Paul writes this in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. So there's these steps in this passage that he says that actually we're not just forgiven. It's not just that we're forgiven for the stuff that we've done wrong. But actually we get invited into his family. We get to be called sons. But there's another step too. That actually because we're sons, we are heirs. Because of what Jesus has done for us, God now chooses to look at us, his followers, in the same way he looks at Jesus. And as adopted children of God, we get to share in all the rights to God's resources. Everything that belongs to him is now available to us. We're heirs of our father's estate. And you know, as heirs of the kingdom, we get to take his godly rule and authority and goodness and power into every single place we go into. Bob Woodruff was the president of Coca-Cola. And he said this, It's my desire that everyone in the world have a taste of Coca-Cola. Do you know, they're not doing bad at that. I was out in Angola once in a very, very poor place where people had absolutely nothing at all. And yet there's these Coca-Cola signs everywhere. They're reaching places all over the world. They're doing really well at letting everyone have a taste of Coca-Cola. Well, Simon Holly is the leader at King's Arms Church in Bedford. He's the one whose series, the Sustainable Power series, we're basing this series on. He says this, oh, for the church to have the same attitude concerning the kingdom of God, that everyone will have a taste of it. See, as heirs of the kingdom, we get to take a taste of the kingdom into every single environment that we go into. At the encounter evening last Sunday night, we prayed for two new ministries we're hoping to start as a church. One, an outreach into people who are caught up in addictions, and one, an outreach to women caught up in sexual exploitation in our town. What are these ministries about? They're about taking a taste of the kingdom into some of the darkest places in our town. We can do that as heirs of God. And we can do that too in smaller ways in our own lives. When, when perhaps with a bit of fear we pray for our friend to be healed, what we're doing is we're taking a taste of the kingdom into our friendships. 
when we go into our workplace and we bring a word of encouragement to someone who's struggling at, at work, maybe a word of encouragement we feel is from God, we're taking a taste of the kingdom into our workplace. When we go into a situation where there are harsh words and everyone's stressed and we bring kindness because of the power of God working through us, we're taking a taste of the kingdom into that place. See, access to God means not only do we get to know intimacy with him, but as heirs, we have access to the resources of God. And we can take a taste of the kingdom into every single place we go into. To be childlike is to have the identity of a child. And it's also to have the access of a child. But thirdly, is to have the persistence of a child. Uh, Our daughter, Natalie, really wants a kitten. Um, The reason I know that is because she asks me every single day. Almost every day, without fail, she will say to me, Daddy, when are we getting a kitten? And she'll do that on the way to school, and she'll do it when I get home from work. She's relentless with this. And when a child is like that, when they get something on their mind, they're like this. It's, It's really hard to get them to think about anything else. And as parents, you know, we sometimes try and, and there's a need sometimes to, to stop that. But actually, I think there's something we can learn from this childlike persistence and expectation as followers of Jesus. I believe the Lord wants us this morning to ask him for things, to ask him for things. Yes, of course, to praise him for who he is and to thank him for the things that he's already given us. But also with the things that we need, the things that he's put on our heart to keep asking our God for them. Not to give up, but to keep on bringing these requests to God. There's a story in Luke's gospel where Jesus teaches about this. He's teaching his followers to pray. And he's given them the Lord's Prayer, this structure to follow. And now he wants to teach them something about their heart attitude towards prayer. So this is what he says in in Luke 11. He says, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. And I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. And my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now this passage used to confuse me a little bit because it used to make me think that actually is God then reluctant to give us the things that we ask him for? But I believe God is not really talking here about the character of God. Jesus is talking here about our attitude towards prayer. And he says we should be audacious. He talks about this shameless audacity that we're to have in prayer. And I love that. Because audacity means a boldness. It means a fearlessness that borders on being a bit cheeky. And you know, Jesus invites us to make use of the privileged access we have to the Father by being bold in the things we ask of him. To pray with nerve and to not give up. Why does Natalie keep on coming and asking me for a kitten? Well, it's because she knows that actually I, I could get her a kitten. I have access to being able to get her a kitten. Why, why should we come and, and keep asking God for the same things? It shows actually that we believe that he has everything that we need. Our expectation is in him. So it's audacious to come to the God of the universe and ask him for things. And yet God encourages it. He says, come and ask me. Keep knocking. Be expectant. You want to see breakthrough in your own lives and in the lives of others? Come and ask me, he says. You want more of the Holy Spirit? Then come and ask me. You want to see change in your home or in your neighborhood or in your workplace? Come and ask me. Just keep bringing these requests to me. 
want to see your family saved or your friends saved or healed, come and ask me. Do you know, the Bible is full of people who kept on asking, who were persistent, audacious even in the way they asked. Hannah was like this. She was provoked and teased for years for not being able to have children. And one day she went to the temple and cried and prayed so long and so passionately that the priest thought she was drunk. These were persistent, undignified, shameless, messy prayers. And nine months later, she has a son. Elijah was like this. On Mount Carmel, he confronts Ahab and the prophets of Baal and calls down fire from heaven against them. These are bold, audacious prayers. And those guys who, their friend was paralyzed, and so they took a mat and they, they lowered him down through a roof in a crowded room so that Jesus could get close to this guy and, and heal him. The audacity of that, to make a hole in the roof and lower your friends down, that is an audacious thing to do. And in each example, there's this faith, this wonderful childlike expectation that Jesus will give them the things that they ask for. And you know, in our church too, there are many stories of people who've prayed for things for years. And only after decades of praying have they seen breakthrough, but they've kept on praying. Audacious, persistent prayers. You know, we say we're, we're open to God, but I wonder if there's a challenge for us this morning. That actually perhaps when it comes to God, maybe being open isn't enough. The writer of Psalm 42 puts it like this, as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? See, that's more than openness. That is thirst. There's this dependence, this need to come to God. It's, and do you know what? It's childlike. This is a childlike attitude towards very grown-up things. So when can I get a kitten becomes, when can I go and meet with God? When can I go and meet with him? And so the question this morning is this, is are you open to God or are you thirsty for God? I believe there'll be people in this room who have gone after things from God for years and you've stopped asking for whatever reason. Maybe it's through disappointment. Maybe it's through unanswered prayers. Maybe cynicism has crept in. Maybe it's time. Other priorities have, have, have got in the way. There may be very, very good reasons why you've stopped asking for things. But I believe God is encouraging us this morning to get closer again to him and to keep on asking for the things that he's put on our hearts. I want to end this morning with the, the story that Neil told back in week one of this series. The reason I want to repeat it is because I, say, I think it says so much about what our attitude towards God should be. It's the story of George Muller who started numerous orphanages in Bristol. I repeat it because I love it. I think, it's, I think it says so much to us. Uh, George Muller comes down to breakfast in this orphan house one morning. And there are about 300 orphans present. And he realizes that there's nothing at all to eat. You can imagine, can't you, what that must be like. And he gathers the children to pray. And there's this knock at the door. And it's the local baker who says that God woke him at 2 o'clock in the morning and told him that the orphans had no breakfast and that he was to bake bread for them. Then a few minutes later, there's another knock at the door. It's the milk delivery man whose cart has broken down outside. And he asks if George Muller could use the milk in his orphanage. And in itself, it's this wonderful story of God's supernatural provision. But here's the thing. 
When Muller comes downstairs and first realizes there's no breakfast, he gathers the children to pray with the words, come and see what God will do. See, his first instinct in that situation was let's see what our father will do. Let's see what he does. Let's see how he'll provide for us. See, behind that response is an understanding of the character of the father and a childlike expectation that he will provide. Do you have that? Do you want that? Jesus says to you this morning, come to me like a little child. Understand that you're in your identity. You're completely dependent on me. Get in close to me. Don't hang about in the outer courts. Come in close to me. You've got access to the Father. And keep on asking me for the things that you need. Amen? Amen. Francis.